It's long been observed that the classical romantic storyline, wherein two people meet, become endeared to each other, face conflict, separate, and then ultimately reconcile, kiss, and roll credits, uh, leaves out a lot of the complicated mess of real life. That ending with happily ever after ignores both the deep work and growth, but joy that comes from lifelong union, or maybe doesn't come from lifelong union as the complications of real life crash in on the fairy tale story. But there's another kind of common storytelling trope which also ends in a potentially overly simplistic way, and that is in any kind of action movie or crime and punishment drama, the courtroom drama, these kind of thrillers, uh, is basically bad guy doing bad things, Good guy catches them, dust your hands, they're off to prison, everything's served, and we can move on with our lives in blissful peace. But this obviously ignores not only the messiness of the good guy, bad guy dynamic in the real world, but also this whole idea that simply putting someone in a prison cell solves all the problems and serves justice and serves society. And in an increasingly complicated world where we see larger and larger mass incarceration, the racialized component, the class component, the profiting of private prisons and the just general awfulness <laughs> that is this system, we need to go beyond the Hollywood ending. We need to look at what is happening and why it is happening. And for that reason... This week on Love, Rinse, Repeat, we're talking about prison abolition. To do so, our guest is Hannah Bowman. She's a lay person in the Diocese of Los Angeles where she works as a literary agent and serves as a volunteer chaplain in the LA County Jails. Hannah is the founder of the Christians for the Abolition of Prisons and the website uh, you can find in the show notes, we talk about it at the end, is an amazing, well-resourced website that you should check out, Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. She is pursuing an MA in Religious Studies at Mount, Ceres, Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. My name is Liam Miller. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Please make welcome our guest today, Hannah Bowman. Hannah Berman, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you for having me. Now, today we're going to talk, people have seen this in, in the title uh, already, that we're going to talk about prison abolition and particularly about Christians for the abolition of prisons. So that's going to be one thing I guess we're going to find out about your personality. But if, if we were asking you to list three things, what would the other two be uh, that people might want to know about you just to, just to you know, get us to know you a little bit before we start this conversation? Well, it is, uh, it is worth knowing that I am a literary agent by day. I represent mostly authors of science fiction and fantasy novels, and so that's a little bit separate from the prison abolition thing, although, you know, I think those, they do intersect in interesting ways. I'm interested in revolutionary storytelling, and I find that these questions that we're going to talk about, about accountability and violence and the cost of violence and how do we live together in community become really um, essential in, in fiction and are what interests me in that kind of speculative fiction as well. So that's one. Um, another thing about me that is maybe not commonly known is that I'm also an organist. 
which I have been told explains my prickly personality. Um, I have not, not been able to play much recently because I have a young child, but um, prior to that, I was a, you know, semi-serious amateur organist, and I enjoy it because I enjoy playing the keyboard with my feet and also um, what my father refers to as the artillery aspect of playing the organ, the part where when you hit the really low notes, the building shakes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. That's a, that's, that's a great little mix of things. So thank you for, for letting us in there. So well, let's get on to the, the other side then of, of prison abolition. Um, I guess, again, we're you know, kind of staying with the autobiographical side of things. What, what began your in involvement or interest or, or sparked your, you know, kind of becoming aware of this as a movement uh, that, that someone might get involved in? Yeah, well, so I, like most people, was not sort of familiar with prison abolition or open to the concept of it for a long time. I got into it kind of through the church. So when I was in college, I was um, part of a Bible study at a girls' juvenile detention center, and that became very important to my own spiritual life, spiritual practice. That was, you know, we were going out every week and and reading the scriptures for the coming Sunday and having sort of church with these, with these girls, these teenage girls. Um, and at that time, you know, I was about 20 and they were mostly about 15. And so it became a real experience of solidarity and, and very much formed. It was early in my own um, life as a Christian and it really formed my understanding of what, what the church looks like, right. Was, was doing this. And then I stepped away from it for a while. Um, you know, I was an adult, I was getting a job, getting married, all of those, those real adult things, but never stopped being sort of really committed to the question of prison reform, to the idea that there's something wrong with the system and we have to make it better. And that's something I was always really drawn to was the injustices of the system. And obviously, especially in the United States, although I think this is a, a, you know, a broader and more international problem, we have a real crisis of mass incarceration. So for a long time, I was approaching it from this sort of, I think, more common prison reform standpoint that, that Christians are... Um, pretty comfortable with, right? Like we want to do ministry in prisons. We want to make conditions better. In the States, we talk a lot now about the new Jim Crow and about sort of ending mass incarceration and approaching it from a racial reconciliation perspective. But people usually don't want to make this step to abolitionists. So I was reading all these sources. I got really, about six years ago, I got really invested in this again and started doing, reading everything I could get my hands on, right? Following um, abolitionists on Twitter and just getting as involved in sort of research the culture as I could. And what really made it click for me was a book by Maya Shenoir, who is an abolitionist organizer in Chicago. Her book was Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. And I should say, hmm. this is a perk of my day job. She's now my client because um, <laughs> I love this book so much. But I was reading it. I was sitting on a train coming back from New York City late at night and I was reading this book and I remember reading it and thinking she, she lays out the problems with prisons through the story, through journalism, because she's a journalist, but also through the personal story of her sister's experience with addiction and incarceration. And then towards the end of the book, she starts talking about restorative justice, about other examples of work that people are doing to, um, to deal with you know, the issues of crime and harm and violence without using prisons. And she got, she's explaining how these possibilities can work. And she's laid out why prisons don't work, just like the title says. And halfway through this book, I realized, oh, this is such a relief. I can stop feeling like I have to say, oh, well, but we need prisons for some people. I've been holding on to this idea that, no, this tragic necessity of having prisons, that it's something we have to have for the safety of our society. And it was this tremendous relief, this real epiphany to say, I don't have to do that. We can just, we can say prisons are inhumane and therefore prisons are unjust. This is not 
necessary. There are better ways for us to do justice. And, you know, we don't have to compromise with evil for the sake of safety. So it was really a profound kind of moment for me. And from that moment, I said, I guess I'm a prison abolitionist. You know, I didn't realize it, but, but it's, it's a huge relief to be able mm. to call myself that. Mm. So I want Wonderful. everybody else to have that, that kind of epiphany too. <laughs> That's great. No, thank you. Uh, I was curious, you know, it's interesting because, you know, that language, obviously, particularly probably in the U S of, of abolitionists has, has, a strong heritage and, and, and evokes um, you know, other key movements. Um, how, how, I guess, does the prison abolitionist movement kind of, I guess, sit or, or like is that language chosen specifically because of its tie to history or, or is it just like the, the best? I think vote? that language is chosen very explicitly because especially in the United States, the you can't talk about prisons without talking about race and without talking about slavery. And that's been laid out very clearly in books like The New Jim Crow um, and Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th and, you know, by Angela Davis, um, you know, by other people in the movement who've made really clear that this is a continuation of this system of racial control that derives from slavery, right? This is about colonization and enslavement and all of these sort of, um, power structures that are deeply, deeply baked into kind of the original sin of our nation's founding. And I think that is relevant to other um, nations as well, right? I mean, this colonialism is not a problem exclusive to the United States. Um, So I think abolition was very specifically chosen to draw on that heritage and also to draw on this tradition of um, radicalism that was really characteristic of the, the, the anti-slavery abolitionists because the 19th century you know, abolitionists who were working for the abolition of slavery were also basically pushing for something utopian when slavery in the United States was so much a, a foundation of the economic system that it was not something that um, it was conceivable that we were just going to get rid of, right? That the, the what we forget, I think, is that prior to the U.S. Civil War, the abolitionists were basically arguing with people who wanted, you know, gradualism. Let's make things better. Let's reform. Let's move away from having quite so much slavery, um, but not too fast. And what the abolitionists really were saying was, no, we can, we can, we have to, we can get rid of this and we have to get rid of this altogether. So I think, I think that's very, um, it's a very explicit connection. Mm. You know, when I, was, when I was preparing for the interview, I was thinking about, you know, the things that go together, right? Um, you know, uh, north and South, uh, pride and prejudice, <laughs> war and peace, and crime and punishment, right? You know, and, and so, you know, I, I wonder, you know, to be the provocateur, you know, was the earlier version of yourself, which was like reform, but we do need something for particular people that, that punishes them, that keeps them out of the way, like... What, what is that step for you that takes it go, no, it can't be about reform and it has to be about, you know, potentially breaking down this link that's so, you know, commonly established in our mind that goes and it has to go that, that step mm-hmm. further beyond that into this, this abolition. Because doesn't it just go so naturally together that we need, when there is crime, there must be punishment. Well, so, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned crime and punishment because actually, although I don't, I don't usually bring it up as sort of the, beginning of my journey, I, I, I read that book um, mm-hmm. in high school, and I remember it having a really profound effect on me, I think, because, um, and I'm a, you know, I'm a fiction person, mm-hmm. but because I was so um, invested in 
the question of what do you do when you have done something terrible? What do you do when you've done harm? And I think that's a really, I think for me, that's the question that's kind of central. Um, and I, I say that to get back to what, what you're asking, which is that I have never been somebody who was, um, I think, particularly comfortable with the paradigm that associates crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. I do think what I what I think about a lot these days is accountability and the quest, the difference between accountability and punishment. And what does it mean to talk about accountability without punishment? And I think that's what's going really all through crime and punishment, mm-hmm. the book, right, which is all about this question of how do you go on after after you have done harm? How do you recover from that? Um, moral injury and what role does punishment play in that? I do think that um, we make a mistake in in advocacy if we don't sort of directly address punishment and the um, desire for punishment as a, a general human thing, right? And I say, well, I've never much liked that paradigm. And that's true because I'm an anti-authoritarian, but it's certainly true that I understand the desire for vengeance, right? Like I, I'm an angry person. Um, <laughs> I don't like my enemies. And so I think, I think there is something really deep in the human psyche that's, that um, has confused accountability with punishment or that has this desire for punishment or that associates justice with punishment. And we see it in our religious texts and we see it in our religious impulses as well as our political impulses. And I think that's important for us to grapple with. And so part of why... Um, Part of where the theology of prison abolition becomes relevant to me is, you know, I think accountability without punishment is the goal, and I will talk about that for hours and more if you want to talk about what that looks like in practice. But I also, one place where I often part ways um, with other abolitionists and even Christians doing restorative justice work is that I do think there is something theologically to salvage from the sort of paradigms of substitutionary atonement. I say that cautiously. I used to use the language of reclaim and I wouldn't do that anymore because I think the criticisms of how that language is, how that those theologies are really harmful are valid criticisms. But I do think there are ways to, um, uh, you know, creatively build sort of counter narratives Mm. using those language and those symbols. And I think we should do so because I think, I think that that question of substitution, that question of, vengeance, that question of punishment gets at something which is really central to how we engage with each other as humans and that we're using those religious symbols to talk about something very deeply rooted and, and you know, I think ultimately um, drawing on that language and that sort of symbolic register gives us tools for overcoming those vengeful desires in a way that simply saying, well, we don't need that, we, we, we're past that, mm. doesn't. Mm. Thank you for that. I think it was interesting you raised in there, like, you know, one of the big questions we should be asking ourselves is, you know, okay, what is the purpose in an ideal situation of prison? Like, why, why do we have this thing? Um, and I think because that's often something we've just got to the point we take it for granted that it has to be there. And then because I think even you might be able to say that, like, you know, even if we had some idea of, okay, this is why it's here um, for whatever um, protection of the um, vulnerable in society from those who who uh, don't act responsibly, um, some sort of like you know ideas of reform and rehabilitation, all that. Like mm-hmm. that, then even if you take that the, the, those at the most ideal kind of I think are so now divorced from the reality of what prison is actually doing, of the amount of people who are in there just simply because they couldn't pay bail for right. you know a non-violent crime, right? Or the amount of people who are net you know. Um, 
who are, who are completely you know robbed of any chance to learn and educate and connect with mm-hmm. a, a new community and, and thus you know enter into some sort of rehabilitation or or open up new pathways for them and, and so even like that I think that's probably something that like a lot of people who might be you know knee jerk dismissive of abolition haven't done that connection of well, why do you think prisons are there and do you know what the reality is of what they are doing to human beings? Right. So if you talk about the the reasons for having prisons, the kind of classical four reasons are incapacitation, deterrence, rehabilitation, and punishment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with these, you'll immediately realize primarily is that they, they work against each other. Mm. Well, incapacitation is, I think, the one that people think of the most when they're actually arguing against abolition. They're saying, but what about these people who are going to commit future terrible crimes? Don't we need to lock them up so that they don't? Um, And that's sort of the argument on the basis of public safety. Mm. And honestly, incapacitation is probably the best reason to have a prison. (laughs) I don't think that justifies having prisons as we have them. But, um, but, you know, I do think there, we do have a communal responsibility to keep people safe. And the question is, do we need these violent places of coercion and control that we have built up in order to do so? And the problem with incapacitation is also that from a, from a public safety perspective is that most people in prison get out. And so unless you're prepared to actually say everyone who has committed any sort of violence should never be in society again, um, which most of us aren't and we shouldn't mm. be, mm. you know, you're, you're, then you need to talk about what are we doing to help people not commit further violence in the future. And mm. all the research on prisons has basically found that they are the worst possible way to do that. You know, that, mm. that what stops people from committing further violence besides aging, um, which is really the most effective thing is building closer relationships, being more invested in the community, having jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, the most useful thing for rehabilitation of prisoners, the thing that they most are most likely to, is most likely to motivate them to change is relationships with their children. They want to be good parents. And yet people who are incarcerated are, are locked up far away from their children and those Mm. relationships are systematically dismantled. So, so that's a way that, you know, I'm kind of getting already at how incapacitation is actually in tension with rehabilitation, even though properly understood rehabilitation is a form of incapacitation, right? If the goal is to prevent Mm. further harm, helping people be better is more effective Mm. at that than locking them up. It's sort of the least effective and most expensive way of incapacitating. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, deterrence they have found really is not effective. The threat of prison is not something that people mostly think about. And there are a number of psychological studies, particularly for sort of younger impulsive people who tend to be the ones who commit more violence, mm-hmm. um, that, that deterrence is, they're just not thinking about it. And so, you know, again, being having more involved communities where you are more likely to get caught and more likely to be held accountable in a non-punitive way is actually much more effective than sort of the threat of a very long prison sentence mm. if you get caught, which you might not, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we talk about rehabilitation, but what happens is that particularly, and this is what I'm getting to, because we also think of prisons as being about punishment, that ends up wiping out everything else. So we talk about rehabilitation, but then, well, we want to lock people up and we want it to be far away because it's mm-hmm. cheap. And why should we spend money on people who have committed crimes, right? And we don't, that makes it harder for them to have relationships with, with mm-hmm. family. And then we don't want to give them decent food, decent health care or educational opportunities because again, we have this desire to punish bad people. Mm-hmm. And so we want, we want it to be 
terrible. And so we don't, and we don't worry about further trauma and we don't worry about the high rates of sexual assault in our prisons. And so we build these situations where all this cruelty becomes part of the punishment or is justified by us not caring because these are supposed to be punitive places, which are all directly opposed to rehabilitation. And in that sense, directly opposed to public safety. So there's this, you know, what I find is that the, this desire for vengeance pulls down all the sort of nobler goals of prisons. Mm -hmm. And that any time you build a system which is based on coercion and exclusion, like a prison, and is vengeful, that desire for punishment or for vengeance is going to weight it down and, mm -hmm. and sort of overcome everything else. Mm -hmm. no, thank you. I think that's, that's so important. Because you see it with people that, um, you know, if, if every time we hear of the conditions being too nice for people or people in prison having too much freedom, the, the, this initial reaction of people are like, oh, how, how dare they have, have that kind of thing? They, shouldn't they be right. suffering more? Right, and some more? of that is, you know, the, the scarcity of our late capitalist society, right? Well, how come they can pay for college when I can't pay for my kids' college? Mm, mm. But, um, but there is also this real, there's a real hatred of people who are in prison and of people who have done harm. Mm, um, and mm. that's something that I think we have to overcome, you know, if we're going to make this better, we, we, we let that desire to punish get in the way of actually making ourselves safer. So one mm. really clear example of that is um, at least in the U S we have all of these registries for people who have committed um, sex offenses, violent sex crimes. And these registries are, wildly ineffective. Um, they are not intended to be punitive, but they end up being deeply punitive. They put very strict residency restrictions and very strict um, restrictions on where people can go and how they can act. They're based on a flawed understanding of how uh, sexual harm happens because mm -hmm. they're based on this sort of stranger danger model, which is really not accurate. Yeah. Um, and what happens is they force people basically into destitution and homelessness because people who are on these registries are not able to get jobs, are not able to mm. find places to live. In some municipalities, are liter there's literally nowhere they are allowed to live. There was a while um, in Florida, in, in one city in Florida, where they were all living under one bridge because it was the only place they were legally allowed to live. And this is, of course, only going to make people more likely to cause further harm because they're more likely mm -hmm. to be in unstable situations and they don't have relationships that are encouraging, you know, pro-social behaviors. Um, mm. And so they're, it's profoundly ineffective, but they're also wildly popular, right? Because mm. everybody says, well, you've got to keep those people away from our children. We have to keep our children safe. And so there's all these incentives in the system where the things um, that would be effective are not what we yeah. do because we're sort of blinded by our desire to get revenge. Mm. Uh, I was thinking about, we were talking off mic uh, before about how like, I've just uh, become ordained, um, which meant I went through a ministry formation process. Uh, I was thinking about that as you were talking and, and, and similarly, you know, raising a, a child, like these two kind of processes and school is another one, which, you know, I'm not saying perfect, but like the idea of them is, okay, we want to form you into a certain kind of mm -hmm. responsible person who cares for others and who has, can engage healthily and all this stuff. And, and, and how do we do them? We do them with, you know, yeah, let's bring people into community and let's have, you know, mentorship and uh, abundance of opportunities and uh, advice on health. And, you know, and then that's how we generally think about how do we help people flourish in society. And then in this time you know, in this one particular situation when people are in maybe more need of, you know, an intentional kind of formative 
structural care, we go, actually, let's just do the complete opposite. Exactly. Well, exactly. And, you know, what we know is that humans develop in relationship, right? That's mm. just mm. fundamental yes. to our psychology. And instead, we, you know, we have 90,000 people in solitary confinement in the mm. United States um, long term, which is, which is a form of torture. But even in less extreme situations than that, what we do is we systematically are breaking these relationships. We're mm. not, we're not coming together in community to say, mm. how can we how can we do accountability? So one of the um, really important restorative justice practitioners in the United States, which is Danielle Sered, who runs um, Common Justice in New York, which is a restorative justice diversion program, she talks incessantly about accountability. And actually one of the things that I have been fascinated by about uh, prison abolition, this is a digression, is that, that everybody thinks it's all about no consequences and just open the prison doors and let people out. And in fact, the prison abolitionists I know talk more about accountability and what that really means than anybody else I know. I mean, I have never heard this much about accountability in the church. Um, so they, it's, it's really, you know, people are really grappling, abolitionists are really grappling with this question. So she talks about how accountability, when you have done harm, is about using, when you have done harm, you have used your power wrongly over somebody else. And accountability is about using that power rightly mm. to make right. And that prison makes this impossible because prison can impose a punishment on you, but by taking away your power, it removes the possibility of using mm -hmm. that power rightly. Yeah. And I think that's relation that's related to this question of relationship, that if harm is done in relationship, then healing is also done in relationship, not necessarily with the person you've harmed, right? Because that's mm -hmm. not necessarily safe or healthy, but that that in those relationships are how we learn how to be accountable to each other. And mm -hmm. so I think building, building those relationships is really um, essential and is effective and is hard to do because, you know, when people have done harm, our, our tendency is to, to banish and exclude. Mm -hmm. And then you look even in prisons, because one of the other things that interests me about prisons is that people really do build meaningful communities of solidarity in them, mm -hmm. right? I'm a, I'm a volunteer chaplain in the county jail here. And, you know, what you notice is that people are supporting each other because yep. they're in this together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just kind of, we're just kind of there witnessing that. Um, but what was really another thing that was really striking to me and sort of really clarified the, the nature of the problem for me um, early on was in, in a book I was reading. This is by Victoria Law, who is also my client because I'm snapping up all the abolitionist writers <laughs> I can. Um, but this was in her first book, which is about resistance movements in women's prisons and specifically the ways in which women's prison resistance takes different forms than men's and tends mm -hmm. to be very much based about solidarity and mutual aid and sort of cooperation for improved conditions. And so I was, I was reading this book and it was pointing out um, how the dynamics of solidarity work, right? That what yeah. happens in these things that are described as strikes or work stoppages is one incarcerated woman realizes that another one needs better health care or something mm -hmm. like that, needs cancer treatment and isn't getting it. And so they all band together to resist mm -hmm. in order to... Um, in solidarity with the person who needs help. And this is something that on the outside, we would see as a real spirit of community, right? As a really good thing, as what we should be encouraging mm -hmm. is for people to support one another. But because prisons are based on this, this methodology of coercion and control, solidarity is a threat. 
because the way you control people is by isolating them and breaking relationships. And so another way that the system is fundamentally not fixable is that as long as you have a system which is built on these relationships of coercion and isolation, where the most important thing is that the guards are always in power over the prisoners, solidarity is always going to be a threat. And even when you look at things like spiritual care and doing Christianity in prisons, providing spiritual care and people providing spiritual care to each other is always going to build solidarity. And so from a certain perspective is always going to be intention um, with the goals of the institution, even though, you know, yes, there are many, there are many ways that prisons do work with Christian groups and do make it possible to provide that spiritual care. So, you know, it it is complex, but I Mm. think, I think there's this really broken fundamental reality. And for me, realizing that solidarity was viewed as a threat was eye-opening because, of course, how could that sort of mutual support be bad, right? Mm. We know that's what we need to build healthy communities. But to recognize that that is, that, um, is seen as a threat to the authority and the superiority of the people who are in charge. And that's something that makes, you know, makes it impossible to do that kind of rehabilitation, to do that kind of accountability work that has to happen in community because you've, you've imposed this constraint of coercion on it. That's great. All of that is great. So this is one thing with the, with coming out of some of those threads with this idea that, you know, when we, when we hurt in relationship, healing also needs to come in relationship and, and that, you know, through, through solidarity and resistance to this, uh, factors that are pushing us and, and hurting us and isolating us. So when sin is kind of individualised um, and seen as a, a, an issue of personal piety and morality, then the remedy is going to be found in an individual response, not unlike, you know, a monk going off alone mm-hmm. into a room, thinking of what they've done, repenting, confessing, and then going out and, and doing it individually, which I guess, you know, is somewhat mirrors what we have in current prisons. But when if we think about, as we should think about, sin having a social, structural component as well as an individual one, then sanctification and the overcoming of sin needs to also have a social, uh, corporate, relational component. Um, and so, you know, these, these resistances and the, these solidarity that, that is formed is really a, a sanctifying Force to, to overcome, you know, these kind of the, 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 the corporate side of sin which fractures our relationships and, and um, holds us down and dehumanizes and all these kind of things. So I, I'm curious about this, you know, these Christian threads that kind of play out bo- on both sides of, of, of the particular model that we have now and of what could be done if we kind of look at, you know, things in a, in a more fuller perspective of systemic sin and corporate and social sin and then having a, a kind of a thus a more robust view of sanctification um, and, and, Christian, and growth. I think that's a really interesting um, point, yes. I, I like this idea of, um, of corporate sanctification and particularly of solidarity as sanctification and the concept mm-hmm. of solidarity comes up all the time in my work, um, in my, so I'm also a grad student, um, in in theology and in my theological work, I I sort of joke that I'm constantly writing about the descent into hell Um, (laughs) because Christ's descent into hell becomes for me such a profound picture of solidarity and this question of, which I think gets at this question of how do we as broken people join together in this Mm. sort of communal sanctification. And I do think, um, 
dealing with the the systemic realities of sin is really important, right, and essential, and something we're not very good at talking about. I am a little hesitant to go all the way on the um, this is a communal problem thing. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that theologically, I'm sort of fundamentally an existentialist. And so I have a very, I, you know, I kind of come out of this Kierkegaardian, uh, the individual leap of faith um, perspective, but also because I do think um, what's so interesting to me in like restorative justice work or what's sometimes called transformative justice, which is much more about transforming the systemic conditions is always maintaining this, this tension between um, this productive tension between the mm. systemic side, the what caused this and how do we mm. change that and how do we look at the influences on us, but also maintaining this really robust focus on personal accountability, right? That you can provide all the reasons for why this happened and you should change those because as a public health matter, public safety matter, we should be changing the systems that lead to this. But then also that there's something really profound about personally you know, making amends, which again is a communal action and that I do think it's about accountability to, you know, the, the broader community. And that's even why when you repent, you confess your sins to another person, right? In the, in the community, that it is a communal act. But at the same time, that it does require this sort of personal commitment, which I think is very, you know, that that's also characteristic of the church, right? When we talk mm-hmm. about the church as a community, and I like to think about the church as the alternative community of reconciliation. Um, and Ched Myers and Elaine Enns talk about am- being ambassadors of reconciliation from Second Corinthians. And I think that's mm. a really helpful model, this idea that if the church is this alternate community, it is a community that is living this other way of justice, but it's also a community that's, that's formed by faith, right? Mm. And, and that that's really essential, that this sort of personal dying to the world with Christ in baptism is how we become a Christian community. It's not something that you're born into. Um, And that's what allows it in part to have this alternative freedom. And I will also say this conception of the church is part of why um, I'm so passionate about doing abolition, you know, not just as a secular political thing, but also Mm -hmm. as a Christian, because I think, you know, if the church is the alternate community of reconciliation, the reality is that the existence of our punitive prison systems and our sort of culture of punishment around crime is an existential threat to the church. We can't be the church Mm. when we're still allowing our members to be punished and locked up. We're not being the church as long as that is happening. And so it's really, you know, it's something that I really feel very strongly about that if we want to live as Christians in the world, this is, this is the work of the church is, mm. is, is presenting this ministry of reconciliation to the world and being, being present where this ministry of reconciliation is already happening. Yeah. Part. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. So if I, I'll throw out another, like, you know, what I might hear someone pushing back. So Jesus head of the church, uh, <laughs> tells a story. Tells a story in which, you know, a guy gets his debts forgiven and then goes and finds some other guy who owes him money and shakes him down. Uh, and upon hearing of this gross mis- injustice, this gross betrayal of um, the mercy he had been he had been offered, uh, that person gets thrown in jail. What a happy ending to this uh, story of injustice. Thankfully, that person gets their rightful comeuppance, uh, you know, isn't Jesus just for good old fashioned prison justice? 
Well, I think I think we have to talk about what parables are for. <laughs> um, no, but but seriously, Jesus is where where is that parable? Is that the is that in Matthew eighteen? Oh, I'd have to. So there is there is this emphasis, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, on you must forgive in order to be forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think uh, you know restricting that to say well look he gets he gets thrown in and gets gets his gets what's due for not being forgiving is an intentional misreading <laughs> of the parable which is about the necessity of forgiveness and i do think you know you are getting at something difficult which is the emphasis on judgment mm. um, in the gospels and i do think the emphasis on judgment and on divine judgment is important and miroslav wolf and i don't entirely agree with this but miroslav wolf suggests that we have to leave room for the violent judgment of god in order to be nonviolent ourselves and i wouldn't quite go that far i do think the entire um, narrative of the bible is a constant movement from retribution towards towards restoration and reconciliation. But I do think, um, I do think that the concept of judgment is essential because, because of this importance of accountability, because we're not saying Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you do. Jesus is not saying Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who you forgive, um, or not. Right. He's not saying, you know, well, anything goes, I guess. And the only way we can express this, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of a dialectical thinker. I love this idea of two poles and you need both of them to make sense of it. And so I think that judgment and, and mercy, I guess we could call it, um, forgiveness, reconciliation, are these two poles that always have to go together in order to show us this picture of what accountability without punishment Mm. looks like. So the goal isn't retribution. The goal isn't good old-fashioned prison justice. But we, if we just see, and then all was forgiven and everybody, and, and nothing matters, mm. we don't understand accountability. And so I think um, Jesus is presenting to us in the only way we can, we can see it, and I think in the only way we can conceive of it, this, this dialectic that says, well, there's judgment, which has an element of punishment, but is mostly about ending the harm, about casting down the mighty, right? Mm -hmm. About making sure people don't have the power to do further harm. And then there's reconciliation. And the reason I was asking if that, I think there's a, if it's not, if that story's not in Matthew 18, there's a very similar story in Matthew 18. And I think it is because the whole 18th chapter of Matthew is about conflict and reconciliation. And it's also- It it is in 18, sorry. Um, (laughs) And and I'm remembering this from Ched Myers and Elaine Ann's book, which goes through the whole structure Mm -hmm. of Matthew 18 as being about restoration and about the importance of restoration sort of ending with this stinger of a parable of <laughs> you better do it or else um but that that's also the chapter that has the parable of the lost sheep and that mm. the parable of the lost sheep is in fact about saying no one is banished or excluded it comes right after these sort of warnings to people who are harming others mm. right don't harm mm. people you know better if a millstone were, were were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea but this is the kingdom of God that we go after the one sheep that was lost. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the context of this whole um, pericope is, is restoration and forgiveness and the importance of moving to this restorative model of justice. Mm -hmm. But the only way you can tell that is sometimes by telling stories that end in judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. And, you know, that parables also, Louisa Shotroff talks about how parables are not just the story, but also how we respond to them. And that our way of responding to them can, can understand that this is about restoration. And so when we see this about judgment, we're not saying 
well, in fact, judgment is the last word, but we're saying no, judgment, the casting down of the mighty is part of what's necessary as part of this process of reconciliation. And what this is really pointing us to is the complexity of accountability, Mm. right? The fact that you can't just say, well, all is forgiven, but also you're going to hold yourself accountable because that's not how humanity works. And again, this is where we get at, I think, some really deep tensions in sort of our psychological and communal lives and how how do we overcome sin and and emphasize accountability, mm. right, without sort of first judging and condemning it. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's really helpful and you made a great response to a very silly question. Um, and I think you're right, like, you know, because you think about, like, you know, something like Jesus and Zacchaeus, there's a judgment on Zacchaeus's ill-begotten wealth um, that then leads to, you know, a actual action that, you know, looks at tra- transforming not only his own life but the lives of who, those whom he has wronged by returning and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, that, that there is judgment, um, you know, tied in with that, but, but, but there's also it's about looking toward a more reconciled mm-hmm. and, and restored community. Right. And Zacchaeus is a great example, or even to go back to, you know, crime and punishment, mm. right? Which which really is a, a great uh, psychological picture, I think. The, all the judgment in that story happens before he ever goes off to the gulag, right? Mm. I mean, before he, he, ever, he goes off to prison after being sort of reconciled and saved al- already mm. by Sofia Semenovna. And so he's, you know, you, you see this whole picture of judgment and in his self-condemnation and in the... the how he, you know, how he responds to that. And I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about judgment is not necessarily externally imposed punishment and certainly not punishment for the sake of vengeance or retribution, but is instead about what does it look like to make this right, right? What does it look like to give away all of your wealth um, to make amends? And what does it look like to sit with someone you have harmed, which can be a very difficult thing to do? Yeah. So you mentioned before how you're a volunteer chaplain mm-hmm. in a prison uh, and that you, you know, did Bible study in, in uh, the uh, juvenile uh, girls facility and have that experience. How important is it that people who are committed to the abolition of prisons continue to engage in the actual brick and mortar prisons that exist? Because I think often when we have like, um, movements that are about the, you know, the, the completely getting rid of something. There is the thing of, well, we just have to then extricate ourselves completely uh, and, and push it from the outside. Um, but but I know a lot, you know, a lot of people who are very committed to abolition also very much present mm-hmm. in the church, in, in prisons. Um, so well, I yeah. would say, you know, I would say, first of all, everybody should do abolition however they can, right? Sure. <laughs> um, yes. um, you know, I don't think working in prison or carceral spaces is a requirement because I think people bring different gifts and I think they should all be turned towards liberation. Um, Having said that, I think from a theoretical perspective, the reason that we keep engaging in these institutions and these spaces is because really abolition is a movement being led by people who are incarcerated, right? And that this is the movement for liberation that's coming from inside the prisons, because that's where Jesus is, is inside the prisons among the people who are incarcerated, right? That's, that's what he tells us. And so we're going there in solidarity with that. So that's sort of a theoretical abolitionist response. I think the more practical response is also that part of abolition work is prisoner support. And is, you know, again, it's solidarity. It's being led 
by the voices of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people telling you what they need, but it's also using our privilege and, you know, taking our ill-begotten wealth, as it were, and laying it down in concrete support of people who are in need. So, you know, I think um, one of the most important things you can do and sort of low, high impact, but low um, effort things you can do is write to people who are incarcerated. And I write to a number of men in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, another way I've gotten into that. That's that support that mm-hmm. reminds people that they are not forgotten. Um, and mm-hmm. so much of spiritual work in prisons is not at all about what you bring in. It's just about being present there with them. So, um, you know, Ash Wednesday is coming up and Ash Wednesday is like one of our most powerful days in the jail because we go and we will often impose ashes on five or 600 people Mm -hmm. over the course of the day. And everybody wants them, which always strikes me as, as funny, right? Because why is, why are ashes the great thing to bring? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we bring Holy Communion, isn't that better? Like, but everybody really wants the ashes. But I think there's also something really beautiful about me getting to go be in that space and in this like solidarity because Ash Wednesday is about nothing if it's not about common solidarity and mortality. And that that's all we are doing is coming and attesting to our solidarity. And we're not on that day Mm. saying, oh, we have the gospel. Oh, we have Jesus. Oh, we have, you know, what you need. But we're just saying we are all here in solidarity together. And so it's a very powerful um, experience and and sort of statement. And I think that's, again, it's that that concept of solidarity that's, I think, Mm. really where it's at. And so practically speaking, um, that becomes essential. And then the other thing is that, you know, frankly, being the more you learn about carceral spaces, the more abolitionist you become. And so the experience of being, of getting to go inside a jail or a prison, um, and I say getting to, you know, as a volunteer or for many people of being incarcerated and and being forced to go inside a jail or a prison really radicalizes you Mm -hmm. um, to see, you know, what the situation actually is. And of course, prisons are intentionally closed and far away so that you won't notice that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, planes hit the seatbelt sign. We're coming even closer to a landing. Um, but it's a, it is very a big question. You kind of started out there with, you know, some ways to start, like the letter writing uh, mm-hmm. and visiting. But I'm thinking about, like, if people who are in either leadership or just, just involved in their churches and want to see their church engage this issue more. Now, obviously, in every context, it's going to be very different and stuff. But, but have you seen things done well or poorly, I guess, Um that, that you would like offer if, you know, churches were interested in, in kind of engaging this um, topic or a group in a church, whatever it might be. Um, well, I think, you know, I think education is so important as a way to start because this is such an unfamiliar um, mm-hmm. concept for so many people. And again, this has been, um, it was such an epiphany for me and I want other people to have that epiphany. And so building space to have those conversations. Yes. Um, so what I have, you know, this is, this was, a major part of my goal in, in starting Christians for the abolition of prisons, which is Christians for abolition.org was to have materials for that. And that's yeah. honestly most of what we do and kind of where, where um, I have found a niche is in, in blogging, but also in providing Bible study materials, which I really mm-hmm. like more than sort of blog posts, providing reading lists because there's so much out there. And so, you know, you can start by using my Bible study on prison abolition, um, which I say, I say jokingly, but I think there's, you know, there's not a lot of material from an explicitly Christian perspective and that deals with this theologically. And it's really important mm-hmm. to me. Um, I think if you're doing this in a church, 
it's really important, I think, to put it on a theological grounding because yeah. I really believe that prison abolition is essential work of the church and is work that should, you know, properly be being done by the church, which is not to diminish all the solidarity and actions being done elsewhere. And obviously for many, many abolitionists, Christianity is not something they want to have anything to do with. But I think for us as Christians, we should understand this as this is who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it's something that's deeper than this is a nice social justice cause that we can pick up, you know, yeah. because it's trendy, but it really is essential to what it means for the church to be a community of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And so I think doing that kind of theological work is really important so that we're understanding how this is essential to our proclamation of the gospel. And so that we're seeing our work for abolition, not as political advocacy, but also as evangelism, right? And also as ministry. And I think that puts us on a much stronger footing. Mm-hmm. So where I would say, you know, where I feel like churches often go wrong um, is partly in in not doing that theological work in sort of separating, and this happens not just in the context of prisons, but really in separating the social justice committee from everything else, right? Um, which I think is harmful, not just to the practice of social justice, but to the understanding of the gospel. Um, and then also is in being willing to settle because people don't know that these radical possibilities are possible and people Mm. don't, you know, people are scared to commit, which is funny in the church, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, but we're scared to commit to these, to to something radical. And we kind of, you know, the the church has a long history of wanting to be in the middle on both sides. And that's how we can be open to everybody is by not really taking a stand, um, Mm. particularly Protestant churches and particularly Mm -hmm. the formerly established Protestant churches. Right. And so I think you know, what I often see is we are against mass incarceration and we're doing a study on that, but we're not really getting to the heart of it either in terms of the radical politics mm. needed or in terms of the um, theological grounding of it. So we'll do a study on the new Jim Crow and that's a good thing. These, you know, anything is is better than nothing, um, but we're not, but we're not really getting at the heart of what it is, why is it that we as Christians do this? And what is it that we can bring that are the sort of special spiritual gifts of the church bringing to this work? Mm. Thank you so much. And I'm glad we got onto the, the website and I'll, it'll be in the show notes because it really awesome. is such a great resource. And you're right, there's, there's a scarcity of it from a explicitly Christian uh, grounding and framework. And the website has a yeah, great reading list, um, good responses to frequently asked questions. You, uh, there's lectionary reflections. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're hoping we can keep that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> those, those Sundays keep coming around. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is I started this project on the lectionary, and I, I, I hope I'm not really a blogger, so this having to write, and I've got somebody else helping me now, so I'm not having to write every week. But I started it as sort of a an experiment, mm. but you know, I'm in a church that uses the revised common lectionary. And so you, you, you don't have your choice in what the readings are. And I started thinking, what would it look like to, to try to preach abolition on all of these? And I'm mm. not a preacher, but it turns out that it's always there. <laughs> <laughs> so much easier than I expected. We've been doing this about, you know, eight weeks or something. And it's just, there's always something it's yeah. so I'm, I'm, you know, it's, which is just uh, further entrenching my conviction that <laughs> yeah. you know, this is really the heart of the gospel, that this is really deeply related to yeah. you know, what we preach as the church. Yeah. So, so I commend the website to, to all you out there uh, to check it out, especially if you're looking to, to start, you know, fostering these conversations in, in church, family, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a great website. I, I had a lot of um, 
I learned a lot uh, looking around it um, in the in the last few weeks, and then particularly preparing for this interview. And then I have learned a lot today. So my my thanks, Hannah, for for coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to promote? Any other ways people can connect with you? Uh, do you want to plug? You can plug literary books. That's that's also fine. <laughs> you know, should we? What should we be looking for on our on our bookshelves or adding to our wish list? I mean, I you know, I uh, I love I love all of my clients' books, and you can Google me and find lists of those, or follow me on Twitter, um, where I do most of my advocacy. But no, I would really encourage people to check out the website, um, and there are ways you can contact me through there. I'm at the other end of that contact form, and so if you are looking for ways to get this started in your you know whatever your context is, I want to help you. So, and for people in the states, we do also organize um, some writing to. To, to incarcerated people, um, which is, you know, letters that come to my P.O. box, which I'm happy to forward on. And um, um, that's, you know, so that's always an option. And there are other programs for doing that as well. So that's always a great way to get started. But mostly, you know, I got into this by reading books and just being horrified by what I saw there. And so I think the most important thing I would say is, is bear witness, because these, you know, these... Um, these atrocities are all happening on our watch and uh, you, it's very easy to ignore and it's very easy not to see. And it's very hard to look at um, because it really makes you, you know, question the goodness of the world (laughs) and, and, and really um, drives home the ways in which we have misunderstood justice and the ways in which we really do grievous harm to one another. And I think it is worth looking at that. Yeah. when and you know as we are able so that we can um can have an accurate understanding of sort of the the spiritual enemies we fight but also be confident in god's victory over them mm-hmm. and that 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 when we do abolition we're not doing this ourselves but we're participating in something that mm-hmm. jesus has already done mm-hmm. Thank you for that, and and you know, and for those listening in Australia, this is you know clearly an issue that we also are grappling with. And we don't have the, the population of the US, so the numbers are not as astronomical. But the the uh, racialized uh, nature of the prison system and, and the colonialized um, legacy that it, it brings, and, and you know, is still so prominent here. And, and immigration needs to be done. Closely related issues of immigration and refugees. Yes. Too. yes. Yeah, and the way exactly the way we've been locking up refugees mm-hmm. offshore, and you know, it's all it all has resonances here. So, so the work is is happening and needs to happen here too in, in our churches. So, uh, I encourage us to, to be having that conversation too, and not be thinking like, oh, the US they really messed it up. <laughs> like, let's not let ourselves <laughs> anywhere near off the hook. Tradition of restorative justice work also in Australia and New Zealand that's drawing on on the indigenous practices. Yep. So yes, so um, we'll link to, to some of that as well. So yeah. Uh, please, yeah, we should be checking that out. But but Hannah, thank you so much uh, for coming on for talking about this work for doing the work uh, for the incredible resource you have gifted uh, the church. So um, thank you so much. And, and thank you. It was it was lovely to speak with you today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time.